Uh, Carol, where's Carol? Carol is going to be doing our reading for us. And uh, we've asked Carol and subsequently other readers, we're trying a new thing, we've asked our readers to maybe introduce themselves a little bit and just give us a couple of lines about who they are because we want to take a moment to celebrate some of the different people who make up our community. So this is Carol and she'll tell you more about herself and read our scripture. Good morning, everyone. I'm Carol. I am born and bred in Tableview. So, yeah, be, I went to Tableview Primary, went to Tableview High School, and, um, yeah, and now I even work in the area. I'm a teacher. I have two children, and that's me. Okay, I'm going to be reading from Acts 5, verse 1 to 11. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is, how is this? How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to humans, human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward and wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are here at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who had heard about these events. Who's excited to talk about that text? I know I am, but it's a real text. We, we're back in our To Be Continued series where we're looking through the book of Acts and we're looking at the earliest church, the, the, the fledgling community of God that uh, expresses itself in a most amazing way. And uh, we started uh, early on in the year and we began to track the story and the reason we've called it to be continued, and you might be a little fearful yourself if you go, is this to be continued as well? Well, the reason we've called it to be continued is because we believe that when Luke wrote this, in the very first verses that he writes it, he says, I'm writing to you, dear Theophilus, who is the, the recipient of his letter, and he says, to tell you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What he's saying there is he's saying that the book of Acts is the beginning of the story of what God is beginning to do and to teach. That's what he expects your, the reader to hear. As they read this, they go, wow, okay, 
he's writing something, and it goes all the way through to chapter 28, but he anticipates at chapter 29, 30, 31, all the way through to 2023, that the chapters would continue to be written through our lives, that the story of the church started at Pentecost all those years ago in Acts chapter 2, where the Spirit of God is poured out on people, and then this little fledgling church begin to preach the gospel, and some people say yes, and some people say no, and this community is then moved by the amazing story of the gospel, and they learn to love each other in a remarkable way, and this community gathers momentum till the 2,000 years later, there are plus minus 2 billion people who claim that this is the message of the Creator and how He has come to humanity and claimed to be the King of the world, the Creator of mankind. We're looking into the story and we are reading ourselves into the story because God has chosen to write us into the story. The book of Acts is a very important book. It's a really crucial one because in so many ways, as Luke writes, he writes and he says, it is a to be continued story. And we get to be those who continue it, who walk in it, who allow God to continue the story through our lives. So this is an interesting text. I mean, this is an exciting one. It is filled with drama and it is nothing short of breathtaking. I mean, really, I think the best word or the best sentence to define what we've just read there is great fear seized the church. Wow. We meet this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Cool names, but you never meet anyone called Ananias or Sapphira. Not often, right? There's lots of other biblical names floating around, but these two don't get called that often, and there is a good reason why not. You see, it seems that they are believers. They, Peter, when he talks to them, he, he speaks to them as though the, the holy, they, they lied to the Holy Spirit. They've got a relationship with God. This is not two people who don't believe in God. There's every chance, says Michael Eaton, that possibly they were even in the upper room and that 120 who were filled with the Spirit. Or maybe they received the, the gospel when Peter preached in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 were added. The point is, is that there is a, every chance that they were part of the earliest believers, And they were followers of Christ. It's a humbling start to this talk in and of itself. Followers of Christ can make some radical mistakes. So Ananias and Sapphira are a married couple living in an honor-shame culture. Honor-shame culture is a culture uh, that still exists today. In the Middle East, it's still popular. But but really, honor-shame is about living with honor before your community. And there are a number of things that would give you honor or shame in the sight of your community. Hey, if you couldn't have children in that generation, you were shamed. You were ashamed to be alive. It was, a, it was a real downgrade on who you were as a person. There was a sense that your identity was tied to your capacity to have children. If you made uh, a, a, your, your family name, if you tarnished the reputation of the family name, there would be a sense of shame upon you. So there was a huge amount of social pressure as to how you should behave and what you should do. And what's interesting is that if you go back, you can't read this story unless you understand what happened a couple of verses before. There was a guy named Barnabas. If you read earlier, he's first, he's first called Joseph, 
And then when he does this amazing act of generosity, the, the apostles kind of rename him and they call him Barnabas. But this guy Barnabas, he comes to the apostles and he says, hey guys, I have just sold a huge plot of land that was mine and I want to give all the proceeds to you. And the book of Acts is marked by these amazing moments of incredible generosity and, and lavish kindness and moves of God. And it's just a, a, an exceptional season in the church. And this moment has happened, and, and no doubt that as Barnabas gives this money and he lays it at the apostles' feet, the rest of the church are going, wow. I mean, we, we know it. We hear stories of philanthropy and people who give radically, and we find ourselves going, whoa, generosity is remarkable. I mean, I think of a guy like Rick Warren who sold The Purpose Driven Life and sold more, more copies than almost any other book in history. It's just a remarkable thing but he only kept the same salary he ever had from the very first time he was a pastor. What a beautiful story. We go, wow, I'd love to be that generous. I'd love to, to know that there's so much money available, but I, I give so much of it away. We, we're wowed by that. And Barnabas's first kind of step of generosity in this early church movement was a wow moment for the community. They're all looking in going, oh, that's incredible. But something interesting obviously happened in the hearts of Ananias and Sapphira. You see, when you're reading the scriptures, you need to track through and go, why does he tell the story of Barnabas, who gives radically and generous, generously? And then the very next story is another story of generosity, except it's generosity gone horribly wrong. You see, what Ananias and Sapphira do is they go and they sell a piece of land exactly like Barnabas did, except they do something a little different. They get the proceeds, let's call it a million rand for their plot of land, and then they go to the apostles and they say, here's 500,000 rand. It's the full proceeds of the sale. You can have it. We'd love to give it. And it seems like Peter, with a spiritual kind of gift of knowledge, a supernatural gift of knowledge, it becomes aware that they are lying. And Peter comes to them and says, this can't be. And he, he accuses them of lying to the Holy Spirit. It seems like they would have had to talk to each other about it as well. Hey, married couples, it's important when you communicate, but it can also, we can also work together to do bad stuff if we're married. We can collude. We can have conversation. It seems like in this marriage, they both said, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I'll suggest a few reasons why I think they decided to go that route. But it seems like Ananias said, hey, I think we should do this. And Sapphira said, I think it's a good idea. Let's go for it. Let's give this amount. Let's keep this amount. But let's tell them it's the full amount. Now, it's, it's a strange one, right? A lot of us are thinking exactly what Peter thought. Because Peter looks at them, he says, hey, guys, when you sold the full plot of land, you could have kept it as yours and just, you know, you didn't have to give the whole lot. Why did you do that? Why did you tell us you're giving the full amount, but you actually kept some back? It's a strange thing. You get this, I kind of imagine Sapphira coming back, you know, uh, three hours later. You know how the story goes. So first, uh, Ananias gets challenged, the husband, and he drops down dead in kind of a, an act of judgment for his hypocrisy, for his lying to the Holy Spirit, pretending he's someone that he's not. And then I can imagine Sapphira with her arms, maybe a nice flat white in her hand and some Zara bags running down either arm. 
And she arrives back after a beautiful shopping spree with the dividends of her new sale. She goes, hi, guys. What are you doing at my place? Loving her new outfit and her beautiful flat white that she couldn't quite afford, but she used to drink anyway. But now she can. And he asks again, Sapphira, did, did you really give the full proceeds? And I mean, can you imagine that moment? where she must have gulped. She's got her arms with new cash all over her. Yes, that's the full amount. Peter gives another chance, another opportunity. And he says, well, the same people that carried your husband out are about to carry you out. And another exceptional, unique moment of fear falls upon the church as God reveals his hatred for hypocrisy. As God does what he's been doing in the first few chapters of this book of Acts is he has been marking some fundamentals about who the people of God are to be. And he puts another stake in the ground in a sense in one moment and he says, this church, my church, will not be a church of hypocrites. My church will not be a place where people say they are one thing and then they behave in another way. And he shoots a warning shot through into the ages and he says, we will always be a people who are marked by the facts of what's inside need to be also true of what's on the outside. You see, the, the story of this early part of Acts is so many exceptional things happening. I don't know when last tongues of fire fell down on you while you were praying with a bunch of buddies. Uh, it just doesn't happen that often, Right. But God in that moment is, is exceptionally saying this church will be marked by the Holy Spirit. I don't know when last people sold a huge pot of land and gave all the proceeds like Barnabas did. But what God is saying there is he's saying the church will be marked by radical generosity. There's an amazing sense where they gather almost every single day of the week. It said day by day they gathered together and, uh, and then in the temple courts once a week they gathered. There was a sense of exceptional tightness of community. You see, what God was doing is he's putting a stake in the ground around the kind of relationships and the, the depth of, of commitment to one another's lives if we're to be part of the church. And then he, in this moment, puts a stake in the ground and he says another exceptional thing. It may never happen again. Maybe it should. May not, though, that someone drops dead because of their hypocrisy. And like we feel the silence here, there would have been great fear that seized the church. An amazing sense of awe that settled upon the people of God. Suddenly this amazing gospel message of a God of radical and inordinate love that was so filled with grace and was so sovereign over all things who was going to promise an eternal future in bliss with people forever was also a God of deep justice. A God who cared deeply about who people were and who his church was and who they were becoming and how they represented themselves before others. It was, by, by, uh, by the way, a continuation, I suppose, of Jesus' ministry. One of Jesus' greatest hatreds throughout his ministry was looking at priests and Sadducees and Pharisees and leaders and looking at them and saying, you guys look amazing on the outside. You get all the applause for the way that you behave, but inside you are dead. He called them some of the most terrible things you could imagine. He called them whitewashed tombs. Inside a tomb is basically just dead bodies. And he looks at this, these guys and he says, that's exactly what you are. 
On the outside, it looks really nice. They obviously tried to beautify these tombs and make them look really pretty and nice for people, but on the inside was pure death. Jesus' ministry was a, a ministry of doing everything he could to remind the world that hypocrisy is probably the worst of the worst. To pretend on the outside that we are something, but on the inside we're something completely different. Hey, if you're a, a kind of conscientious objector, somebody's dragged you to church, you, you kind of wish you weren't here, but you're here, and uh, you're looking in, or you've looked in at the Christian faith, and you've had so many questions there are so many people who, when you ask them, what are your biggest objections? And I looked at Google. One of the biggest objections to Christianity, if you just kind of look at the first few lines on your search engine, is that Christians are hypocrites. Famously, Mahatma Gandhi said, I love your Christ, but your Christians, they my struggle with. There was a sense then and there is a sense even today that many people look and go, I've got some big questions. I, I like the story of Jesus. I like the man Jesus even, but I've got some questions about the people. By the way, I'm not here to beat us up. The message is actually a good one. The message is an important one, and I don't think we're going to leave feeling bad because Gandhi said some nasty stuff about us. Hypocrisy is not going to get sorted out by us being better people. I'll talk about that. So this is not a talk. Spoiler alert, this is not a talk about us being better so that we look better to the world around us. We'll get there, though. So let's just address a few things that it seems like are, are key as we look at this text. Firstly, notice that God hates hypocrisy. I've mentioned that. He, he hates it. This is, this is a moment right in the start of the church where he shoots that warning shot and he says, this is not going to be tolerated. This is not going to be part of who we are. Inside of the DNA of the family of God, we will have problems. We will make mistakes. We will sin. But hypocrisy will be the thing that will cause the greatest destruction and a kind of flash forward of the judgment of God upon hypocrisy arrives straight into the church. That's one of the amazing things, you know. What's happening in the beginning of this early church moment is that, in a sense, heaven is spilling its banks into the, the life on earth. That's what the church is. It's like the overflow. The, 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 the age to come has spilt its banks, and it's filtering down. So the, the spirit being poured out is, wow, God's presence so close with us. That's what we'll be like forever. But when the spirit's poured out, we get, a, we get heaven right with us. What a wonderful thing. And when there's amazing community and generosity and, and love between one another and it's not filled with cynic, cynicism and questioning and doubt and wondering whether motives are good, oh, that's what the age to come will be like. Pure, beautiful relationship where love is given and love is received. And so we get this wonderful spilling over of the age to come into this early church. And it's a place of generosity. It's a place of deep peace. It's a place where there's favor with God and with man. This is Eden restored, and we're seeing it in a little pocket of community. But what you'll never see in eternity, you will never see it, is hypocrisy. You'll never see a disconnect between what's happening on the inside and what's being shown on the outside. And so you get this spilling over, this flash forward. That will come to an end, and that is what God does in this moment. He says, I want you to know that this will not last. This will not be tolerated. I hate hypocrisy. 
And I think he wants to make the church aware of this. Question you may ask is, well, were Ananias and Sapphira, where did they go? Michael Eaton says, no, they, they certainly, they went to, to be with God. They weren't judged into hell. They were judged into a, an early judgment against their hypocrisy. He says it like this, that they'd likely be saved, but to quote Paul as those passing through the fire, those who snuck through the fire as, as if they just got onto the other side, but it would have cost them in terms of their experience of God's amazing reward. We ought to be wary and cautious and thoughtful about the hypocrisy that lives in our lives. Secondly, we should remember that hypocrisy is to be the enemy of the church too. We too should hate what God hates and love what God loves. And we too should, should hate hypocrisy as a, as, a, as a kind of instinctive reaction. We shouldn't want our, our lives or those around us to be disingenuous. We shouldn't want there to be a disconnect between the outside and the inside. And I think thirdly, my one reflection as I've been thinking about this text is that we should be careful to make a media-shaped or to create a media-shaped view of hypocrisy. This is important. You see, the media have told us what hypocrisy is. There's a few things. When you hear hypocrisy in the church, you think of the big mega church pastor who's made a big mistake. And you go, oh my gosh, that is so bad for the church, and it is. But then what ends up happening is you only think of that version of hypocrisy. Or you think of, you know, maybe the, a, a certain denomination of churches that has, has notoriously been, uh, you know, in the news for certain abuses. And what ends up happening is you, you one, you, you become very negative about the institution called the church, which is a dangerous thing. Maybe you heard of a person like Ravi Zacharias, heartbreaking story of a person so filled with wisdom and so filled with a ministry of power who goes and finishes his ministry in such a cloud of pain and hypocrisy. But I would want to suggest that for every Ravi Zacharias, for every one of him, there are 5,000 Nikvits. Nikvit you've never heard of. He was my childhood pastor who pastored a small church, probably half the size. He pastored it for five decades, and when he got to 65 or 70, he handed it over, he retired, and he lovingly looks after his wife and his children where he lives. But that doesn't sell. And there are so many people who have done an amazing job, and what we end up doing is we think this, this community, this story is just filled with so many, but for every Ravi Zacharias, I want to put it to you, there are 5,000 Nikvits who are loving God, loving people, faithfully in small little churches, who are doing the best they can with what God's given them, and then they go to be with Jesus. And that's the story. And we, we must be nervous, weary about the media telling us what hypocrisy is. I would suggest there's a much more dangerous and much more insidious hypocrisy that lives in all of us. And that's who Ananias and Sapphira are. They are not mega pastors. They are not even small town pastors. They're your garden variety Christian sitting on red chairs in a small town on the little northwestern coast of Cape Town who are just getting on with life as best they can, but their hearts are prone to wanting something in a sinful way, just like me and just like you. And I want to put it to us that we need to maybe just redefine hypocrisy, redefine the danger of hypocrisy.
when I suggest or say the word hypocrisy, I, I would say it's a self-arranged or self-organized gap between who we want people to see us as and who we are. A self-arranged or self-organized gap between who we want people to see us as and who we really are. It's our chosen projected image. It's the person we're putting up, but it's not necessarily the person we really are. Let me suggest three things. Causes of hypocrisy, the consequences of hypocrisy, and then the cure. Causes, consequences, and cure. But what causes hypocrisy? What, what would have caused hypocrisy in these, these Ananias and Sapphira? You, you must feel some sort of sympathy for them, don't you? I feel like shame. There's a lot of people who've done worse who didn't drop dead and die. I would imagine one of the causes would be envy. I think that there's, there's two types of envy. This is, my, this is me just reading into the text, and you're allowed to do this, by the way. You're encouraged to submerge yourself into a, into a scripture. You can do this. You must encourage yourself to, to read in and go, what might have happened in their hearts? I, I, I've made up a story, which may or may not be true, but I think it could still be helpful. There's Ananias, a young uh, a man. He, he loves God, and he loves what's going on in the church. He loves the fact that this church is growing, and wow, there are some leaders who are beginning to emerge. And oh my goodness, wouldn't he like to also be a leader? So in his heart, he goes, well, how do I become a leader? And, and whilst he's thinking these thoughts, Barnabas goes and gives this huge gift. He doesn't really realize maybe Barnabas is also a very gifted teacher or preacher. But regardless of that, he watches Barnabas, as he gives this huge amount of money, also rises to quite a lot of prominence in the church. So Ananias in his heart goes, I want what Barnabas just had. That looks good. He, he's now friends with Peter, for goodness sake. The, the, the rock, the guy whom, who, who Jesus spoke such profound promises over. I want to be friends with Peter. I've got a spare plot of land. I can't believe it. I really do. He looks good. I live on one and I own another one. What if I sold that? Maybe I'd get the same result. So it's not about the land. Suddenly he's ambitious. He's envious. He's got something that he wants in his heart. And so he begins to dream about this this life, this partnership. I mean, you think how, how actually pure-hearted in a way it is. He wants to grow in leadership. He wants to do what others are doing, but it comes from a place of a root of sinfulness. And so he sells the plot. But he chats to his wife and he says, you know what? Excuse my stereotypes if this is unhelpful to some of you. He says, I'm thinking of selling this plot of land and I'm thinking we give 50% and we keep 50%, but let's tell them we gave the whole lot. And she goes, oh, I don't know if that's a good idea. Then she racks her brain and she remembers dropping the kids off at school the other day. And how rubbish she felt in the car she was in. And how she just wishes she could buy flat whites whenever she wanted. And actually, she just doesn't like the school she's in anywhere. The kids just aren't that happy. And there's just so many more opportunities in the other one. If she could, so at first it was a bad idea. Suddenly it becomes a decent idea. She's going, oh, we could just do that. I know that's our nest egg. I know that's what we were going to, you know, rent out, and there was going to be a, like a nice way to give generously and bless people. But I could get that stuff now. And so all of a sudden it becomes so much more plausible. 
because her heart wants some basic stuff pretty quickly, and she wouldn't mind a bit of extra cash, so she could just feel a little more part of those people who she watches enviously who've just got a bit more. And so in comes this envy that feeds a codependent relationship where one guy wants to get something so he can be promoted, another person wants to get something so she can be more comfortable, and suddenly it works. And you can justify doing some really dumb stuff. Do you feel a little closer to Ananias and Sapphira? Does your heart connect a little more? Hey, it can also be comparison. This evil thing that says, I just want to keep up. It's a lot like envy. It's not just wanting stuff. It's wanting to be like others. In our life group, uh, 18 months or two years ago, we asked the question, what is the biggest challenge amongst us as men? And to the man, the first one was comparison. I look around at other men and I wonder, have I done enough? Have I kept up? Have I been as impressive as they were? I look at the guys around me, I go, do I seem to earn as much as they earn? It's amazing how under the surface of our lives, comparison captures us and, and catches our attention and causes us to do stuff we wish we would never do. Tired of shopping at Pep. Tired of saying no to your kids because they can't do that one extracurricular. Comparison. You look at other people who can. The other one could have been showing off. Another cause for hypocrisy is that actually, and, and some theologians suggest that Barnabas was unwise, or maybe the apostles were even unwise, to publicize Barnabas's uh, act of generosity. How much simpler for Ananias and Sapphira had they never known that Barnabas had done that? How much simpler would it have been if that money had just been deposited into the bank, he had had a private conversation with the leaders and said, hey guys, I just felt like God lead me to give this amount of money. You guys do with it whatever you want. Somehow it became public knowledge. And because of that, that showmanship caused them to envy and compare. And we need to be careful about what we do with our lives and how we show off what we've accomplished and what we've done. Even our most spiritual stuff, often our most seemingly spiritual stuff, can cause other people to envy, to, to long after. Humility is one of the most amazing gifts to the community of God. Envy, comparison, showing off, or just plain old fear of being exposed. We don't want to be exposed for the stuff that's going on in our hearts, and so we want to cover it up. Nobody wants to know that actually, I just wish I could get my kids to another extracurricular. I just wish I earned a little more. I just wish this or that or the next thing. And so we try to cover it up with all kinds of extra activities, but on the outside, it looks like, oh, you're a really busy person. On the inside, you're envious or comparative or, or longing to be able to show off like all the others. The early community was getting a warning shot to say, hey, we can't do this. Envy, comparison, showing off. It's not okay. We've got to learn to share our lives in a wonderful and honest way. This is part of what it means to be part of the church. So those are the possible causes. I'm sure you could write another long list of other causes of hypocrisy. Those are the ones that I could think of. Hey, what are the consequences of hypocrisy? What could be some of the consequences? To quote one commentator, he says this, the major consequence is this, hypocrisy ruins our lives. It ruins our lives. 
It was a warning shot to us to say, this is the most extreme expression of what hypocrisy will do. It will kill you. It will kill you. It is so tiring living in two worlds. I once uh, remember meeting a mechanic, and uh, I was about 18. I had this car that was always needing a mechanic, and so I was always looking for an honest one, and I remember chatting to this one mechanic, and I said, hey, uh, I don't know what's wrong. How do I know what's, you know, and we're chatting about it, and uh, I was asking a question about, like, you know, his own journey of, like, how do you know, you know, all of us are quite naive to a car, you could tell me anything, and, uh, and it could be different next week, and I wouldn't know anything. You could just milk me for lots of money. I remember this guy said, you know what, I always tell the truth, because then I don't need to remember what I've said. Wow, that's cool. I actually heard that, and I felt like God was speaking to me when I heard that. I thought, if I could live my life like that, I'll always tell the truth, and then I don't need to remember what I've said. The danger and the challenge for us is that we tell ourselves so many stories about our external world that we begin to believe it. That's probably the only caveat to that. The only risk in our lives is we've so convinced ourselves of an external reality, of what we deserve or what we're worth. But I would, I would want to challenge us. Because what ends up happening, the consequence of not telling the truth, of living two separate lives, the external and the internal, is a deep exhaustion of soul. This could probably carry on in our honestly healthy journey, to be honest with you. The topic is so similar. The, the consequences of, of hypocrisy are a languishing life, a life of deep unhealth, a life of, a life of deep exhaustion. They were so exhausted they died. It's tiring. It's a tiring thing to, to keep your story going, to keep chasing after something that will uh, externally serve you or support you or make you feel or look better. It'll end up changing your behavior so that you're modifying the externals to appear different. Remember a friend, uh, actually Kate, who visited us last week, Kate and Ryan. She said in her early days of ministry, because what happens when you get into ministry is you begin to minister and you stand on the stage and you say, hey, if anyone would like prayer, please come up. And you anticipate everybody who needs prayer to come up. And uh, one of the things she realized in the early stages of being part of the church was that she began to be happy to pray for people but never ask for prayer. That's a version of hypocrisy, right? You think, well, I, now that I'm here, I'm on the other side of the stage, I'll never need prayer. And she made this commitment that she's, that's always stuck with me. She said, if I've committed to myself, if ever I need ministry, even if I am on the leading end of that, I'll turn around and I will ask for prayer. Because I never want to be the person who looks like I've got it when actually all I have is need. And it was a wonderful thing to me to, to keep reminding myself, which side am I on? I'm always needing ministry. I'm always needing prayer. I want to always commit to myself to making sure that I'm willing to receive, that I can be the person in need. Not always putting on a veneer or a facade of having everything. Are we feeling some of the weight here? So this is the good news. What are the cure? What is the cure for hypocrisy? We've looked at causes and uh, we've looked at consequences. But what are the cures? Well, there's one cure, but there are two kind of false cures. There's two dangerous cures that almost look like real cures, but they're not. The one the Bible describes as the law. 
The law is our kind of best efforts to be good people. And that's one of the dangers. You hear a talk on hypocrisy, and you hear about all these bad mega church people, and all you do is you go, mustn't be naughty, don't look at porn. You've heard all the bad stories about all the pastors who look at porn, and you go, I mustn't do that. And so you think of hypocrisy in a very narrow band of trying to be a good person. And so you try your best to maybe give financially and to be kind to the grannies and help them cross the road, and you do everything you can to try to be a good person in a very narrow band of morality, and you find yourself living in a very shallow, unbiblical way. That's no cure at all. It's the be a better person theme. I'm a good person, and so one day God will thank me for being a good person. God owes you nothing, and your good works are filthy to him. Our good works are nothing in comparison to the righteousness of Jesus. We'll never match up to that standard. And if we fall into that pattern of thinking my good works and me living off of the law and just being a good person, we will find ourselves more at risk of becoming hypocrites than ever before. It's a dangerous, slippery slope, saying I'm doing well. The other one is the flip side where you go, actually, just rebel, just reject this whole thing. This whole system is flawed, and so I'm just going to just ditch it. It's the kind of be free from all this limiting morality theme. I just can't live in that. I can't bear the thought. I'm tired of that. You can't tell me what to do. You do your morality. You create your truth. I'll create mine, and let's go and live our lives. Look at society around us. See how that's working. That isn't seeming to be the solution either. The answer, of course, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a it's an obvious one. I'm not going to suggest that I've got something clever or, or sneaky or, or wiser than the gospel. The only thing is that in the gospel, we get a whole bunch of wonderful truths. One of the first and scariest truths in the gospel that we learn is that actually we're all hypocrites in, in some way, shape, or form. That actually we're all living on God's good earth that he created for us, and we're saying, I deserve my place on earth. I deserve a good life. I deserve to be happy. You know what you deserve? And you know what I deserve? We deserve nothing of God. All of us, as the scriptures, have turned our backs on God. All of us have gone our own way. And all of us have rebelled against God in some way or shape. And all of us haven't lived the life Jesus has called us to live. There's no one who's exempt from that. There's no one who's exempt. Every single one of us live before a holy God and have not lived up to our holy God standards. We're hypocrites claiming that we deserve this good life. It's not all bad news, though. Because we're all in need of love as well. We have things that we don't want God or others to see and know. It's the truth. It's the truth of our lives. We've got stuff. There's not a person in this room who doesn't have something that you really hope some people don't find out. What a crazy thought. Have you ever thought about that? That each of us have a bunch of things that we desperately hope that nobody finds out about us. Oh, it's crazy and we're all smiling at each other. Oh, you're just so sweet, such a nice person and we all like each other. Oh, madam, he's such a good guy. But every single one of us have stuff that we really hope nobody finds out. They don't spot, they don't see, they don't pick up. So fundamentally, there's a level of imposter that all of us live in. Every time we move towards community, we go, oh, I hope I'm not found out. And of course, in the gospel, we get a God who knows 
everything, who sees everything, and he still loves fully. That's what this early church community are founded upon. The preaching of the gospel that they heard was that God in Jesus Christ had seen their inability to match up to the law, had seen their rebellion, and still like that prodigal father, had run out towards them and had wrapped his coat around them, put the finest ring he could find, took out the fattest calf, slaughtered it, and set a massive feast and said, come and dine at my table. This child that was lost, the son that was lost, has been found, and I am delighting in that. There's a deep sense of God's sacrifice on our behalf. He knows it all. He understands that we have done such awful stuff, but he loves us to the core. Why? Because the only sinless one, the only one who truly did live the righteous life, the life that the moralist wishes to have lived, he graciously offers his life as though it were credited to us. That's what the cross is. The cross is a God who lives a life we could never live and then credits his life to us and puts it in our account as though we lived it. So that when we move towards the Father, we move with confidence and boldness. Like my kids do with such confidence. They come in the middle of meetings and times where I wish they wouldn't and they come to me with confidence and I'm an imperfect, really flawed father and they move towards me and they hold me and they won't let me go because I'm their dad. They know they can move confidently. You know you can move confidently towards God, not because you're not a hypocrite, but because you have a God who has dealt with your sin, who has taken your sin as far as the east is from the west. It was taken upon him. It was dealt with thoroughly. It has been punished completely. And now you move with freedom and your shoulders back into the presence of God with great confidence. And now the task is to live honestly, before him. Hypocrisy is not a case of living a perfect life. It's a case of living a humble and an honest life. You see, in the gospel, we find that there's this amazing balance. This community were filled with the fear of God that seized them. I heard a lovely reminder today that one of the most uh, terrifying things besides losing the fear of God is that we would lose the fear of God. One of the most awful things. The, the only other thing that's more terrifying than not having the fear of God is not having the fear of God. What could be worse than that you forget that God is who he says he is? What a wonderful moment in the life of the church that they feared God. One of the greatest tragedies in our world is maybe that we don't fear him enough. This is not a fear that we can't know him, that we can't be with him, but that he would ever not be who he says he is. He is the creator. He is the holy one. He's the awesome one above all things. He is to be revered. And yet at the very same time, embedded in that awesomeness is a father who loves you like his very own will get down on his haunches and he will love you with a tenderness and a kindness that is beyond your wildest imaginations. In the gospel, you find a balance of fear and a father. You find a full dose of grace and of truth. A full dose of grace and truth. Imagine a life where you could be radically loved and yet still deeply challenged. 
There's nowhere but the gospel where you can be loved and challenged into transformation quite like in the gospel. Imagine a life where your whole life has lived both vulnerable, I said the V word, vulnerable, but also safe. Imagine you could be vulnerable and safe, where you could give the, 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 the deepest secrets to a God who will then tenderly help you through them. Didn't the money belong to you before it was sold, asked Peter? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? Come on, you, you, you could have vulnerably just come and said, hey guys, we made a mistake. Imagine that happened. I don't know if it would have got into the scriptures, maybe. Ananias and Sapphira then came to the apostles and said, hey, by the way, we sold a plot of land and whilst we were going through the process, we considered the thought that we were going to keep half and give half. But we've come to our senses and realized that we were driven and motivated by ambition and comfort. And we just want to let you guys know that we've got some stuff in our hearts that needs help. <laughs> Would anybody be willing to walk a journey with us? Because I'm just like super ambitious and it's going to cause me major pain in the future. And, and, yeah, and I'm just desperate for comfort and more money. And I really need some help trying to get through that. Yeah, we, thank you for sharing. We would love to walk with you. That's the gospel community. Imagine that it happened. Imagine that. I've seen that numerous times in the story of our church in different ways, shapes, and forms. Imagine a culture where we can be both honest and accepted. You share all of your stuff, and then you still know that you're accepted on the other side. That's the gospel. That's the story of Jesus. Hey, a place where holiness and wholeness come as a package deal. We actually, we love to become more like Jesus. We hate sin, but we don't judge based on sin. We want, it be, we want to get right with God so that we can live free in his love. Holiness and wholeness. Holiness is not an opportunity to look down on others and go, look how much better I'm doing. It's an opportunity to actually become whole. I'm not trying to make us feel bad. What I'm trying to do today is to cause us to feel confidence to come to God and to live in a community where we can bring all of who we are before God and before trusted and loved ones so that we can break the divide between what's going on on the inside and what's going on on the outside so that we can live with integrity. Integrity comes from the word integrate. You're one person. You're one person under God. And we live that before him. We're going to take communion, and um, as we take communion, I just want to put this lovely passage of Scripture up, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. It says, but if we live in the light in the same way as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from every sin. Life in the light. That's the community we call to. As we take communion, Jesus' communion table, his invitation to the communion table was the kind of community he's calling us to be. It wasn't a meal to be eaten alone. It was a meal to be eaten together. It was a meal to be eaten in the sense that as we come to this meal, we interrogate our hearts. We come before the one who died on our behalf. He died for our sins that so quickly catch us up so that as we come, we come with reverential fear before him. And as we crush that bread, we remember that he was crushed. And as we drink that juice, we remember his blood was shed. It wasn't done in vain. It was done that one life 
all of who we are. We didn't sign our problems off at the door. We didn't sign off the stuff, our secrets off at the door. We brought them all in. We bring them to the table. And we bring them to God. And we say, thank you that you died on my behalf and that you deal with this. And so the band are going to come up. 